At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hey, good evening everybody. Welcome to this live podcast recording for Drug Science. My name is Max, I am Head of Comms at Drug Science and we're joined today by some of my amazing colleagues at Drug Science, our founder, Professor David Nutt, of course, and we've got four fantastic a PhD student from Imperial College London tonight who are going to be telling us about their fantastic research with psychedelics. A few things to say before we get started. Firstly, those of you who are already community members, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yeah, yeah. Having you support us means everything to us and really enables us to keep going. If you are not a community member, you can simply go on our website and click on donate and you can become a member from only £5 a month and that gets you free access to events like this. And we do many events through the year, so it's really, really worth it, and we really would appreciate your, your support. So that just leads me to introduce our wonderful host this evening, Professor David Nutt, who's going to interview Rayanne, first of all. So thank you. Thanks, Maggie. Well, it's great to see so many of you here. Actually, it's the first time I've been warm in a month. Uh, been trucking around festivals, I'm wet. It took me three days to dry out after the uh, secret garden party. But it's nice to be warm and also being able to hear myself think, not having a, to do an interview with people with tent of music next door. So it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to it. And this is uh, an unusual but interesting development in our podcast series. How many of you have not listened to our podcasts? That's bad news, isn't it? <laughs> I thought they were popular. Well, the good news for those of you who haven't heard a drug science podcast is that we have over 90, so you've got a lot to choose from. And uh, I guess if we divvy these up as to four, we'll probably be about 94, 95 now. So we're reaching the centenary. And they span everything from very, very old people, people even older than me, like Dennis McKenna, to, uh, to very young people. I think this is probably the youngest team we've got, the youngest group we have on the podcast. So. And they cover lots of things. Tonight it's going to be pretty psychedelic, but uh, we also got a lot of stuff on cannabis and on drug policy, etc. So welcome to the podcast world of drug science and uh, welcome to Ryan. So uh, as you know, those of you who have listened to my podcast know that I don't do very much. I, I give the interviewee the, the opportunity to tell us all about their wonderful insights. But I'd like them to start off by telling us a bit about where they come from and why they ended up where they are. Because the good news is for these students is, that, you know, it's only five years of history. We won't have the four hours of Dave Nichols. But so yeah. over to you, Ryan. Tell us, why are you here and where did you come from? And uh, yeah. before we talk about what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm Ryan Safar. I'm a final year PhD student. So I've got less than a month to hand in. 
So it's crunch time, but I am. Um, I joined the group. Are you sure you got time to be here? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm being asked. <laughs> so, but yeah, I uh, I joined the group four years ago, and I'm from Manchester, so the north of England. And I was always interested in the link between the mind and the brain, and how you could apply biology to that. So I did biomedical science as an undergraduate student. And it was really fascinating, the development of the Centre of Psychedelic Research. In fact, Dave, you gave a lecture at my school in 2012 when I was deciding... What oh, was that Manchester Grammar? Uh, Old Twingham Grammar School for Old Boys. And you saw the first pictures of LSD on the brain. And I remember right. that being really a seminal moment okay. in making me try and understand what I wanted to go into. Right. At that time, I didn't really know much about psychedelics, but I was... Nor did I. <laughs> but I've learned a lot since you've been there. Yeah. But yeah, that definitely kind of was like a point that I remember in like my mind is like one of the key reasons maybe why I wanted to end up mm -hmm. working with the group and yeah I guess I'm here today. So you did an undergraduate degree and then you you got a PhD scholarship, MLC scholarship. Yes so um, I did biomedical science and kind of pivoted to neuroscience and then I went to King's and I looked at neuropsychiatry so that's the neuroscience behind psychiatric disorders but that kind of fell a little bit short of the work we do here because it was looking at the reasons why you become ill but not really how to fix them so there wasn't that translational aspect that aspect of using biological mechanisms to try and develop you know novel treatments for people with these conditions and so i really wanted to kind of use that kind of basic science but use it in a more of an applied fashion and that's essentially the work that yeah. you and the team have been doing here so it felt like a great place to kind of use those skills and yeah, so I was lucky enough to get a Medical Research Council uh, fellowship. I don't know how I got it. I think it was hard work and a lot of luck. But yeah, that's, really, that's, a, that's a, science is a bit like that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so I uh, made an application. And at the time, I wanted to look into addiction, which is the guess what we're <laughs> going to speak a little bit about. And it's really interesting, specifically, I think, psychedelics and addiction because people don't commonly think that you can treat something like an addiction with another drug or another illegal drug. And we'll go into that, I guess, a bit more, but it's probably been seen to be one of the most effective clinical treatments for it compared to the treatments you currently have and that kind of paradox between the two. So why were you interested in addiction? I mean, drugs in general are like quite a fascinating way to sort of explore the conscious mind and look into how different kinds of behaviours can be elicited. So you look at things like MDMA, they envisit, they, well, they, they let you feel empathetic and they let you have these emotions of happiness and bonding. Drugs like cocaine make you motivated to do something or to talk about yourself a lot. And then there's like, you know, drugs like LSD and psilocybin, which obviously as many of us who follow the research, they have this kind of increasing consciousness of awareness, but this is all drug-induced, so that's a chemical that you take. And so just looking at drugs and the effect of drugs on the brain is fascinating, but also for some people they can go wrong. And I think addiction really lies at the heart of behavior, really, because it's all about kind of what you are motivated to do as an organism. And learning about the biology of addiction can really make you understand you as a human more. And so... Building that into psychedelics seemed like the most natural way to really explore the kind of the brain and the mind sort of link. So you've, you came here to, to do your PhD and you, but yeah. you also obviously been having to choose the technology to work with mm -hmm. and you've chosen imaging. Yeah. So explain to people why you chose that and what kind of imaging you, you've chosen and, and what actually you're 
using it, what yeah. questions you're using it to address? Yeah, so uh, there's different types of neuroimaging, but it's probably the most advanced way that we currently have to kind of look into the brain. And you can have imaging to look at brain function. So, for example, you can show people videos or clips related to different kinds of emotion valencies or stress or pain. And you can see how their brain responds to it. And that can give you a good insight into how somebody functions. But actually, when you think about disorders like addiction, specifically, what we're trying to look at is whether environmental cues can actually stimulate brains of individuals and how those environmental cues stimulate those brains and make them more encouraged to engage in certain behaviours like drug taking. So one thing that we've developed um, during my PhD is something called cue reactivity paradigms. And that essentially shows pictures or videos to, um, we've tried this in gambling addicts, so behavioural addictions, videos of gambling cues uh, twinned with what we call natural cues, so food, social nature. These are naturally rewarding stuff that, you know, our reward pathways in our brains would naturally light up to because we want to eat and we have to. We need to socialise uh, for protection and also for reproduction. And also nature is just one of those natural sources that most people that have healthy brains, and I say that with in quotation marks, enjoy. But in addiction, you don't really see that. In addiction, and what we've seen in some of our preliminary results is that the brains of individuals with well, hang on a second. I think you okay. ought to just explain what you do first before okay. you get the results. Okay. So what we do is, yeah, so that's one, one kind of imaging, is looking at this fMRI, so brain function. Another one is looking at neurotransmitters. So there's over 100 we know of, I think, maybe more. And we want to establish whether there's like a, you know, a neurochemical theory or basis to some of these disorders. Now, a lot of people get up in arms about this kind of mentality or thinking and serotonin and depression has been battled for for over the years but we do know certain neurotransmitters of fundamental addiction such as dopamine and so the other part of the work that I've been doing is looking at how dopamine functions in the brain so dopamine is sometimes known as a molecule of more or the motivation molecule people often ill interpret it to be the hedonistic molecule but we don't think it's really related to that but we, need, we know it plays a function alongside other sorts of neurotransmitters. So we want to look at how the neurotransmitters relate to brain function and, having, and then how that relates to behaviour. So that is called a functional to molecular translational bridge. It's getting a bit tacky now, but it's the most advanced way that we can really understand how the mind and the brain works together. And what we're trying to develop are tools, specifically in clinical trials with patients, to understand how molecular changes from drugs like psychedelics can actually alter brain function and therefore behavior and how that's related to psychedelic therapy. And that will give us the most kind of detailed understanding of the mechanism of action of drugs like psychedelics. So I mean, it's not obviously not necessary to measure what's going on in the brain to find a mm -hmm. find a treatment, but why do you think brain imaging is going to help us in finding new treatments? In? I guess the key thing that it has been used for is to develop targets. So one thing that I, I think doesn't really get spoken about is actually inefficacy related to psychedelics. So if you look at some of the COMPASS trials or even the addiction trials, 100% of people aren't responding. And although they're more effective than our current treatments, we don't actually know the reasons why people are responsive to psychedelics or not responsive. And hopefully brain imaging will be able to give us some insight as to why that's the case. 
And therefore, with that information, we may be able to generate, which is currently happening, these so-called second or third generation psychedelics that can maybe be more optimized. Or perhaps the brain signature will tell you more about whether a person needs two or three doses or, you know, how whether they need a combination of drugs, for example, rather than just psilocybin, they might need psilocybin plus ketamine plus maybe MD. It, it all depends. And because our brains are so different, because they're kind of reflective of the very specific environments that we've been kind of brought up in, I think the treatment paradigms will look very different when they're rolled out. And perhaps brain imaging may be able to help us define how treatments are actually delivered in the future. Well, take an example. I mean, how many of you saw the, uh, the TV program about Paul Merson's gambling? You, don't, you can admit to see it watching television. It's all right. Okay, well, if you saw it, the rest of you didn't. But if you had seen it, you'd have seen some wonderful images of Paul Merson's brain as he was uh, being scanned, fMRI scanned, whilst he was looking at gambling cues versus looking at non-gambling cues. Actually, it was, it was staggering, wasn't it, to mm-hmm. the extent to which his brain was kind of consumed when, when Merson looked at gambling cues. Vast you know, chunks of his brain became very, very active. And when he was looking at other cues, the sort of cues that other, other, we might find interesting, like those beautiful flowers at the back there, his brain was pretty much flat, wasn't it? Yeah. And that, that was a, you know, a really remarkable insight and a fantastic program. You should, you should watch it if you can, because it, it kind of proves the fact that people's brains are, you know, the, the brain of someone who's addicted to gambling is actually responding very differently to, to the brain of someone who isn't addicted to gambling. And your plan then is to utilize that technology mm-hmm. in gamblers other gamblers, not famous gamblers, but, but ordinary, <laughs> ordinary addicted gamblers, and, and see whether you can, the impact of treatment on that, those, that reactivity yeah. predicts outcome. Is that, is that what you're planning to do? Exactly. So, um, yeah, we were lucky enough to get some funding a few weeks ago from the UKRI, which is a funding body, to do a very small pilot study looking at the effects of psilocybin therapy in gambling addicts. So... I think this is fascinating for lots of reasons, but I think the key one is that behavioural addictions as a whole have never been investigated with psychedelics. So we know alcoholism and nicotine addiction, and more recently there's some early trials with cocaine and methamphetamine. These are all substance use disorders. And we know drugs affect the brain, which change behaviour, but actually from what we've seen with the gamblers, even the behaviour alone is changing brain function. So it's a good model, a good prototype to model addiction in the brain because it's a drug-free model. So we can really look at the process of addiction in a drug-free brain because we don't know how much of it is related to neurotoxicity versus just behavior. So that's the scientific, like, interesting part of, of why we do it. But what we do want to see, as Dave mentioned, is see whether this cure activity changes. So After psychedelic therapy, we see patients that recover that no longer have craving, no longer have urges to consume or engage in behaviours related to their addiction. And what we think is the theory is this kind of rebroadening of uh, salience or rebroadening of what's important to you under psychedelics. And, And what we think will happen is this kind of hyperactivity of the brain to gambling cues will be diminished. And we'll have an increase perhaps in this hypoactivity, so reductions in activation to the natural cues. So they will normalize after taking psychedelics. And so this reward spectra 
in the brain, the way that they interact with, you know, their environment is now harmonized again. And it's that perhaps the brain can actually model that and maybe psilocybin may be changing, you know, brain function in order to facilitate the clinical outcome. So that's our working hypothesis is that there's this rebroadening of salience, as we like to call it. And I guess we'll see a year from now whether we see any signal from that. But could you like in the last couple of minutes just speculate as to why a psychedelic might do that? Okay, so I guess... It's like, I'm getting him ready for his PhD viva. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you've got, you've, got a, you've got the reward system in your brain. The reward system kind of governs, as I mentioned, approach behaviours, anything related to motivation. And in addiction, what we think is that there's kind of this disconnect between the front part of your brain, which is involved in reasoning and behaviour, and the very kind of old reptilian part of the brain, which is involved in the consumatory behaviour. And what happens in addiction is you have this kind of more mentality from the bottom and the frontal part cannot engage that to quieten it down and say, no, don't respond to this cue. Now, we know that there's these kind of tracks that occur from the frontal cortex down into these more basal regions. And we think that perhaps what psilocybin might be able to do is strengthen the connection between the front parts of the brain and the more limbic system areas. And that will help to regulate dopaminergic transmission again. Perhaps that might be able to boost it. We'll only be able to find that out with PET imaging, which we might get funding for. But we may be also able to see this with uh, diffusion tension imaging, which is another type of fMRI tool. But essentially what we want to see is whether we can recalibrate this kind of seesaw, which has been kind of weighted the wrong way, and actually look at whether the frontal striatal connectivity pathways have been uh, remediated. So that will kind of be the main sort of paths that we look upon. And there's some animal work, good animal work, which shows that the serotonin 2A receptor sits on these descending glutamatergic neurons from the front part of the brain to the uh, limbic system. And when you've seen in these models where you attach these two a agonists, it actually causes changes in dopamine function. It causes phasic dopamine to be released in sort of the nucleus cumbens, those deep regions. So there's good preclinical evidence, actually, that when you stimulate the 2A receptor, you can actually recalibrate dopamine function in the addiction parts of the brain. And so uh, there's a bit more research now building on that, other receptor systems and targets. So if you can translate that and see that in humans, I think... That would be a really great advance for understanding what addiction is and also maybe also developing, as I mentioned, more effective psychedelics in the future. Because a lot of people don't know, but those of you who read the book will soon learn that Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in 1933 by Bill Wilson, who was allowed to escape or discovered and escape from his alcoholism as a result of a powerful psychedelic trip. And the paradox is he founded Alcoholics Anonymous and promoted the use of psychedelics in the 50s and 60s as a treatment for addiction. And then, of course, when they got banned by the Nixon War on Drugs, Alcoholics Anonymous was faced with an, a fundamental challenge, pursue scientific uh, evidence-based treatments or to do what the government told you. And, of course, uh, as you all know, they went down the route of doing what the government told them, probably because it was the only way of staying out of prison. But that particular line of research had effectively died in the la for the last 55 years. And, and this is remarkable. There are you know, very few studies looking at psychedelics in addiction. 
uh, just a couple of started in the last few years, and yours will be the first in gambling addiction. So congratulations on uh, mm. on getting the grant. And uh, yeah. yeah, maybe in a year's time, we can get you back on and you can tell us what you found. So, yeah. But I'd suggest you get your PhD in the meantime, <laughs> all right? Yeah. Can we give him a round of applause, please? So, you've got five minutes to ask him anything you want to ask him. Hi, no, 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 um, McGregor Cox from Royal Holloway. Thanks very much for that. Super interesting. So, the whole framing of your talk was very much through this like lens of modern modern medicine, right? Like, what's the mechanism? Take some images, like, let's get evidence, let's get proof that's empirical. Psychedelics are something which are like steeped in indigenous knowledge and cultures and traditional ways of using them and integrating with um, like disruptive urges to like break the system and stuff like that. How do you reflect on that when you have taken a very straight up and down, this is science, this is evidence approach? And how do you think that that, that could be combined with those more um, holistic, perhaps care-based rather than treatment-based approaches? Mm. Yeah, this is a really fascinating question. I guess you're right. Psychedelics have not been created by scientists. Some of them have actually, like LSD was created by scientists and some of the the synthetic drugs. But yeah, psilocybin has a long history. And I guess the, the reason why we do clinical science is because we want to integrate these treatments into hospitals, into clinical care that can be reimbursed for by patient, and there's a certain standard of things like clinical trials and evidence which is required for regulatory offices like the Medical Health Agency, the FDA, all these bodies. The system is very much in place and it needs a certain level of safety and efficacy to be proven in order to be a medicine that is viable. And we actually think that if we get this through into the NHS, it will help a lot of people and it will save a lot of lives. And so we're kind of doing this research, it's very scientific, modern research, in order to comply with that very system that exists. And that's unfortunate because there are certain things that we can't do within the context of those trials, which include a lot of the kind of wraparound in terms of spiritual healing and kind of less clinical ways of delivery. And that's completely important, but actually the benefit of having a two-tiered system, which you see now, which is psychedelic wellness, which is merging in like Oregon and Colorado, and you have these retreats in you know, the Netherlands and Barbados, is that people have a choice. People can choose to go and do those practices, and they can go to South America, to Peru, and do ayahuasca. And, you know, legal, the legal landscape is changing, but also I think it's equally important to have the medical development so that patients that may not be as comfortable going to a shaman in the jungle can do it via a psychiatrist in their local hospital or those that can't afford to go abroad. And so I think what we're trying to do is we're just solving this part. And I completely respect what the indigenous communities do. If I was in Mexico in, in January and I actually visited some shamans that use 5-MeO-DMT, but actually the toad to treat cocaine and heroin addicts, and I learned a lot from their research and I'm actually still speaking to them about some of the things that they do. In fact, one of them told me that a certain amount of drum banging is actually from their own research is correlated with better outcome. And I'm not sure how we can integrate that right now, to be honest, in a clinical setting. I can't see a psychiatrist banging the drum. But, you know, there's, there's some things that are beyond us as scientists, but I completely respect and want to learn from them, but within the kind of confines of the system that currently exists for us. Any other questions? One more here. Hello. 
I would like to know from a scientist view, how do you define an alcoholic? Because alcoholism is, you know, everybody drinks. And how do you, you know, define which, who is an alcoholic, who is not an alcoholic, yeah. social drinker? I mean, well, Dave's a psychiatrist here, so I guess he's got a lot more history defining it. Well, yeah, I always give the answer, read the book. But <laughs> the, the, we haven't got the drink book here, so we're going to have to give you the... <laughs> and obviously, I mean, you know, an alcoholic is a rather loose term. It's an interesting term, of course, because very many people who have problems drinking do define themselves as alcoholic. And it, it's essentially being in a situation where alcohol distorts your life to a point where you want to stop drinking. That would be the simple definition. And there are many reasons why people drink to that level. But there are some other questions here. The back there. So the answer is there's no single cause of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. People get addicted to alcohol through very, because they enter the drinking arena through di for different reasons. Stress reduction, impulsivity, craving, etc. Yes? Hi, I was just wondering if you've noticed for your imaging, if there's any differences between the type of addictions you've been looking at. So obviously you've got the behavioural addiction and then the substance use addiction. Have you seen any like structural or functional differences through the imaging that you've conducted? Yes, yeah, so there's very subtle differences depending on the addiction. If we look at brain structure, obviously the substance use disorders have a lot more atrophy, so that's reduction in tissue in the frontal cortex, so see that a lot in alcohol is actually probably the most destructive drug for the brain, so you see significant atrophy almost like an Alzheimer's brain in end-stage alcoholism. And think things like cocaine stimulants also cause a lot of uh, structural damage. But you also see the same in gambling addiction as well. You see like a reduction in serotonergic function, some changes in brain structure too. But when we look at things like dopamine signaling, for example, some disorders such as alcohol and stimulant disorder specifically, they have a reduction in dopamine function, but we don't actually see that as much in gambling or cannabis or heroin and smoking addictions. So we know that there's not just one neurotransmitter which is kind of underlying all of these addictions. We think it's a multiple, very complex neurotransmitter. It has a complex neurotransmitter basis to it. And we're actually working on a paper at the moment which will go into that for my thesis and basically look at the dopamine theory of addiction and say that despite the 40, 50 years of research, not really much further in our understanding of dopamine and its role in addiction. Well, we, we understand it's not the central. It used to be that, you know, they're now in GCSA syllabuses, they teach dopamine is addiction, but that's far too simplistic. Yeah, exactly. So, Can we give another round of applause, please? Thank you.